and welcome you back this evening as we uh, engage in our study tonight. I'm glad that you're here and uh, hope that you have your Bibles open and uh, your hearts and your minds open as well. I always love seeing our youth group. We have a great youth group here at Northside and I'm glad you're here tonight. You were in my thoughts as we were singing some of these songs to think that um, you know, but maybe some of them know, uh, you all, a lot of you will not be with us next Sunday as our teens go uh, down south for Winterfest at, in Arlington, Texas. It's always a, a, a big high point for the youth group and uh, you all will be in our prayers, not only that uh, you'll have a good time and, and have lots of fun, which surely you will, but that God will move in your life and that God will move you in your life in a way that draws you closer to him. So I hope you have a great weekend and uh, that that is a pivotal moment for you. I'm not sure if your family has any um, birthday traditions. Uh, you noticed tonight uh, we were singing some songs that seem a little bit out of season uh, denominational Christianity would would put those songs in in December because that's of course when Jesus was born. Uh, speaking about that sort of tongue in cheek, uh, we don't know when Jesus was born, but we know that he was born. And there's four specific chapters devoted to that story. Uh, in our house, the Levering household, we have a couple of birthday tra- traditions. One is that you get to select your breakfast, whatever. I mean, not they can't you don't we always have breakfast okay but but you get to select what you want for breakfast it could be donuts it could be biscuits and gravy pancakes or 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 anything really There's, we haven't tested the limits of that but it's really up to the birthday person what you get to have for breakfast and we'll uh make allowances and figure out how to make it happen that's one special birthday tradition at the levering household the other is uh, during the course of the day, if it's Tyler or Grace's birthday, uh, I try to share with them the story of the day that they were born, uh, how it happened and, and what what events took place and, and what we were thinking as we drove to the hospital and, and uh, what we were thinking the moment we held them for the first time. Uh, that's important because it gives them uh, a little bit of perspective that their life matters in our lives, and it gives them identity and purpose. Uh, I think that's the reason that the story of Jesus being born and the boyhood of Jesus is partially in the Scripture, more about his birth than his boyhood. Uh, We're going to talk about that as we delve into the book of Luke. Uh, We are on Sunday nights doing a series called Life with Luke, where we go through textually uh, the story, the account, the orderly account that Luke put together for Theophilus. Uh, and we go through that for the purpose of getting Luke's perspective, uh, getting Luke's eyewitness account, uh, the, the eyewitness accounts that he gathered together for us about the story of Jesus. So as you turn to Luke chapter 2, uh, we need to understand that tonight the story is about Jesus' earthly beginnings. So we go there now to Luke chapter 2. The first thing we realize as we are in chapter 2 is that the birth of Jesus was the answer to the prophets. It was the fulfillment of prophecy. Uh, Luke chapter 1 is about what happened 
before the birth of John and Jesus with his parents, uh, the angelic announcements to both Zacharias and Mary, uh, Mary's visit to Elizabeth, who was pregnant with John, and the, her response uh, to what God was doing, what we call the Magnificat, the uh, birth of John, all of that takes place in chapter 1. I kind of fast-forwarded through chapter 1 because I know we've spent a lot of time in that in our recent Christmas series, so I didn't want to um, cover a lot of recently covered ground, recover it, I guess. But as we come into Luke chapter 2, uh, this is where Luke, at least, focuses on the birth of Jesus. Did it happen on December the 25th? Uh, it's possible. It's one three hundred and sixty-fifths possible uh, that it happened on December twenty-fifth. Uh, if you're a statistician, that's point oh oh two seven percent chance of Jesus being born on that day. Um, there's way too much time, in my opinion, being been spent on when Jesus was born and all of the different signs and what we can deduce from where this, uh, where the star was and, and what happened in history and all of that. At the end of it, and no matter how smart you are, how much research you've done, uh, the conclusion is speculative. We take an overview of... Uh, this story, before we jump right into it, um, there's a reason that the date's not in there. Because when it happened, uh, if we knew the exact date, um, if we got, we, we as human beings tend to get fixated more on the where and the when rather than what God is focused on, which is the why. We can tend to focus on the how and the what and the when and the where. And uh, those details get frustratingly fixated in our human hearts. And that's not what's important. So God didn't put it in there, and I think that's the reason why. We look at chapter 2 from a, not a 30,000 view, like a 50,000 foot view of of the chapter. Uh, First, there's the census. Caesar decrees that there's a census, so everybody has to go to their hometown. They go to Joseph's hometown of Bethlehem, and while there, Mary goes into labor. Uh, The shepherds receive the angelic announcement. Uh, After he is born, Jesus is circumcised there at the temple, and he is blessed by Simeon and Anna. As we uh, look at the birth story, we can see uh, that it was clearly an answer to the prophets. Uh, when we look at the, when we turn backwards from Matthew and Luke, and we look at the the prophecies of the Old Testament that Jesus fulfilled, we we see that this is a a sign. I mean, we think about all the signs and the miracles and the works that Jesus did as proof of his authority and proof of who he said he was. That happened, by the way, before even the moment Jesus was born. He fulfilled prophecies, a multitude of them, that could not, uh, the likelihood of any one person fulfilling all of those would be very, very slim. In Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 5, you don't have to turn there unless you want extra credit. Uh, Paul writes, when the fullness of time had come, 
God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Now, this is cool, in my opinion. You know, preachers who, who study all day and want to share with you all the cool things they find is that Jesus was adopted by Mary and Joseph. He, he, he was, you know, he existed before he came into the world, but he was adopted by human beings that we might be adopted by God. I think C.S. Lewis said something like, um, the Son of God became a man, a man so that the sons of men might be called sons of God. Well, however you say it, there was a purpose, there was forethought put into the, into the birth of Christ. And when we look at some of the prophecies, uh, we can see very clearly that Jesus was the only one that could have fulfilled all of these. The first is the understanding that he would be from Nazareth. Now, there is no uh, Old Testament prophecy that says specifically he would be called a Nazarene. A Nazareth, a, a Nazarene was a, a sort of a colloquialism. Nazareth was a, a small, obscure, tiny town that everybody kind of... They were at the bottom of the pecking order, okay? And in, in fact, you remember in John, the book of John, um, Nathaniel says, uh, Nazareth, can anything good come from there? Okay, so, you know, it, it was just this universally sort of despised, good-for-nothing small town, 55 or so miles north of Jerusalem, and it sort of had a, a negative reputation. Well, <clears throat> the, the scriptures do tell us that one, the, the Messiah would be, be one that people would despise and reject. Psalm 22, verse 6 and 7, I'm a worm and not a man, said the Savior, or the prophecy about the Savior, scorned by everyone, despised by the people, all who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. Nazarenes were scorned by most everyone, and so uh, the interpretation of, of Jesus as a Nazarene was a prophecy, as an allusion to Jesus' hometown of Nazareth, but also fulfilling this, this colloquialism that they used to uh, use Nazarene in a mocking sort of way. The second prophecy about Jesus is that he would be born in Bethlehem. Now, Micah does spell this out specifically again. Uh, turn here only if you want extra credit. Micah chapter 5 verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, you who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. Um, uh, if you guys, I don't know if you'll sing this at Winterfest this coming, but there's the song that goes, uh, I can't even think of the title of it now. The Ancient of Days. Okay, that comes from Micah chapter 5 verse 2. The Ancient of Days, uh, the one who would be from Bethlehem. He would be of the house of David, Second Samuel chapter 7 verse 1. You will always have descendants. I will make your kingdom last forever. Your dynasty will never end. Here's the cool thing. We who are in the church are a part of this eternal, not a worldly kingdom, not a political kingdom, but a spiritual kingdom. 
We are a continuation and a fulfillment of that promise. Of course, well-known, uh, although somewhat debated um, by folks who are too smart for their own good, is the prophecy that he would be born to a virgin. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Of course, we at Northside absolutely believe in the virgin birth because it's in the word of God. And we trust and believe in God's power to do that which we do not understand. The lesson is, in all of these prophecies and in all of these fulfillments is that God uh, always keeps his promises. Despite the odds, despite that we don't understand it, God always keeps his promises. Now, we think, I've asked you tonight in Luke chapter 2 to think backwards about the prophecies and the fulfillment of those prophecies by Jesus. We just touched the hem of the garment. Now, I want you to think forward for just a minute that Jesus promised that he would return just as he left, just as he was leaving and they were looking up, standing, staring there into the sky. Jesus, or the angels promised that Jesus would return in exactly that way. Now, we are promised in the same way these people, the Israelites, were promised that a Savior would come and that he would be from Nazareth. He would be born in Bethlehem. He would be of the house of David. He would be born to a virgin. Uh, no signs, no prophecies are given to us about when Jesus will return. I mean, lots of people spent lots of time and sold lots of books and made lots of money saying, hey, here's all the signs for when Jesus will return. But what Jesus said was, there's not going to be any sign of my return. It's simply going to happen like a thief in the night. What's interesting to me is that they were given signs. They were told, they were given some, some points uh, to, to look to. And they were not, they were still not prepared for when he came. And we are not given signs, but we are called to live for an uncommon return. We are called to live in a prepared sort of way. The second thing, as, as we focus on the birth of Jesus, in addition to being an answer to the prophets, he was also an enigma to many people. He was a mystery. First Timothy 3.16, Paul wrote to Timothy, Great indeed is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh. Let's try to wrap your mind around that. To, to, to take a holy, eternal, powerful, all-knowing God who is not only at creation, but was before creation. In fact, the scriptures say all things were made through him, by him, and for him. And in this moment, this, this moment God planned in time, he steps into the flesh. He was manifested into the flesh, and he took on human limitations. You and I don't consider human beings to be very limited. We're, you know, we, we send people to the moon. That's been a long time ago. We, we, we have uh, done all sorts of things. There's seemingly no end to what the human mind is capable of. But it has this problem. It's finite. It's limited. 
We're, we're limited on where we can go and how fast we can get there. We're, we're limited by laws of physics and space and time and aerodynamics. and we're, we're, All of those limitations Jesus didn't have before he was manifested in the flesh. He was vindicated by the Spirit. He was seen by angels. He was proclaimed among the nation. He was believed on in the world. He was taken up in glory. That's a mystery. Even people who have been Christians, been a part of the church most of their lives, still, if you say, well, exactly how did Jesus manifest himself? Exactly how was he vindicated by the Spirit? Exactly when was he seen by angels? How will he be proclaimed to all the nations? Uh, These things are still mysterious even to those who believe. The only way, the only story um, that we have is in here. We've got to trust it, even though we may not fully be able to wrap our finite, limited minds around it. The only story we have between Jesus as a newborn, as an infant, uh, and and when Jesus was a man 30 years later, is one, and it's in Luke chapter 2, verses 41 through 42, and uh, it's an unusual story. Let's Read together, and by that I mean, I'll read, and you follow along. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up to, according to the custom, and when the feast was ended, they were returning. The boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went about a day's journey, and then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. This is verse 46. I'm sorry, verse 45. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. All who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us like this? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Now this is the the story of Jesus when he was just 12 years old. Uh, they watched him. His parents watched him, and and they raised him. They were there the moment he was born. They had they had been with him this entire time. They had seen the angels. They had heard of the pronouncements from Anna and Simeon, and yet still, there were times and places. I have no doubt that this was not the only one where Jesus was a mystery to his own parents. Now, to be fair, not to pick on you greatly, but. There are sometimes teenagers are a bit of a mystery to your own parents. I mean, we, we raise you. We know you. We were there the moment you were born most, in most cases. 
And, and yet still, still, at this phase of life, sometimes you do things that we uh, don't fully understand. Perhaps your parents have said, why have you done this to us? Um, they watched Jesus grow. They, 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 they watched Jesus grow physically. It's, it's kind of weird to think about this, but Jesus was a certain height and weight. Jesus had a certain look. Jesus had a certain voice. Jesus had a smile that, that was unique to Jesus. Jesus had hair color and eye color. Uh, Jesus would have been uh, able to have been sick or, or been uh, restless. He, he, he would have no doubt had human emotion. He had all the physicalities of human beings. He became strong. He was filled with wisdom spiritually and intellectually. Now think about this. The writer of Hebrews says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus was physical like us. He was emotional like us. He had a a, a limited intellect, although certainly working with the Spirit, there were some things that he knew that were... Uh, outside of the average 12-year-old, you might say. His parents watched him grow spiritually. Uh, He was tempted as we are, and yet he never yielded to that sin. My question is, did Jesus learn his godliness, or was he just always godly? Did he just know it? Did he, did he, was he self-aware spiritually? Oh, I'm, I'm the son of God. Or, or, or did he grow into that knowledge? The scripture does not tell us 100%. If you think it does, come find me but I, and, and show me the scripture. But, but, but I don't, as I read it, the scriptures, I have not found somewhere in scripture where it tells me if Jesus was instantaneously aware from the moment he stepped into the flesh of who he was, or if he grew into that knowledge and God opened that to him as his uh, human limitations were able to understand. Clearly, by age 12, he knew some things. He, he, He knew some things in a way that he was able to converse and to debate and to listen and to question with the teachers of his day. Now, now this was no small thing. Um, don't want to jump too far ahead. Anyway, the, the, uh, as a man, as a, as a young child, as a young man rather, he had a great example set by his parents. Mary and Joseph were not just uh, uh, unknown people. Uh, his parents were righteous, God-fearing people. Joseph, we're told, had the reputation of being a righteous, God-fearing man. He, want, he had in mind to divorce Mary quietly because he didn't want to subject her to public disgrace. And yet he wanted to do the right thing. He was a, a God-fearing man. Mary, the young girl that she was, uh, who did, surely did not understand uh, how, what was happening, why God had chosen her, and how she would be in any way be able to explain this to her parents, to her family, to Joseph. Uh, but yet, when she's confronted with this holy uh, interruption by God, her response is simply, Behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it, me, let it be according to your word. 
Um, Luke tells us that they did this according to the law. They took him to be circumcised. They uh, went to observe the annual uh, Passover. They were righteous people who tried to do the right thing in the right way. Um, So you have in Joseph and Mary this really great family picture. Now we know from the sacrifices that they made the pigeons, the, the, uh, that they were poor, and yet they were immensely rich. There is a reason that God selected them, and I think Jesus had a great upbringing. Now, of course, great upbringings don't mean it's always perfect. Um, if you've ever misplaced your child for four days, you understand that's sort of a stressful thing. I've never had that experience. I've lost my child for a few minutes, not knowing where they are. But, but Mary and Joseph had this extra set of pressure because the angel told them to name him God with us. And all of a sudden they're looking around like, uh, do you have the Son of God? I thought he was with you. And, and all of a sudden God with us ain't with us. And uh, that's a little stressful. Which is no doubt why Mary says, why have you done this to us? Um, (laughs) I just imagine they're trying to walk through how they're going to explain this to Gabriel. Uh, You lost him? So they they were faithful, they were righteous. That does not mean they were perfect. They had not misplaced him, but they didn't know yet that Jesus was on a different mission than they were. We do know that Mary had other children besides Jesus. There are some religions that teach that she did not. The scriptures say otherwise. Luke chapter 8, which we'll get into later in the year. Then his mothers and brothers, or some translations say brothers and sisters, came to him. But they could not reach him because of the crowd. I mean, I know there's pressure being a parent of Jesus, but can I just look to the youth group for just a moment? And, And I know... You think you have it bad being compared to your siblings. Can you imagine Jesus as your older brother? You know, the pressure that you might have. Oh, Jesus, he's so perfect. At age 12, Jesus stays behind with the teachers. Now, uh, they don't, Mary and Joseph don't know this. They assume he's with the family. Anybody who's been to family camp understands how this happens. Uh, kids kind of become community property, okay? And, and you assume they're with you, but you don't, you couldn't just lay your hands on them at any given moment. But they're with you, they're in your presence. But they travel for a day, they can't find them. And, and now they have this great pressure and they find him with the teachers. And they are, Jesus is doing something, the same thing to the teachers, by the way, that he had done to his parents. Uh, what they found astonished them. Um, the astonishing discovery was that they found him, and he wasn't making trouble. He wasn't lost, he wasn't scared, he wasn't crying. Um, he was at the temple. He's sitting with the teachers, which is not normal for a 12-year-old Jewish boy to do. That was an earned position to sit with the teachers. And that was a position 
that you earned just to sit there and be quiet. Twelve-year-old boys didn't, didn't converse with the teachers and debate with the teachers about the word. He's listening and he's asking them questions. Everyone listened. Anyone could do that. But, but very few questioned the teachers. These teachers, if they didn't know who Jesus was then, they would surely not forget who he was later on in their life. And it's clear to me that Jesus was a prodigy. Now, again, was he a full-blown? Did he know it all? Did he remember being at the beginning and, and, and know the whole purpose and all of that? But what must this position have been like for Jesus? To hear people debating and discussing and listening and memorizing the word that he inspired. And the author gets to speak to them about the plan and the purpose. And ask them questions they didn't think of and tell them things they had never considered. I love that for just a a brief moment in time. Twelve-year-old Jesus, long before he began public ministry is still wowing people, still leaving them in amazement. His parents come in, and Jesus sort of nonchalantly, why, why are you looking for me? Did you know that I must be in my father's house? What we'll learn about this as we continue through the story and as we read other gospel accounts is that Jesus would spend a lot of time in his father's house. At the end of Luke, in Luke chapter 22, when Jesus is arrested, He'll say this, every day I was with you in the temple courts and you did not lay a hand on me. You want to find a Jesus? I mean, at this point in, t- in Jesus' life, they didn't realize that he would be hanging out there a lot. But, but I have no doubt in my mind from this day forward and certainly in his public ministry, you wanted to find Jesus, all you had to do was go to the temple courts. The woman, the story of the, the woman caught in adultery, that occurs in the temple courts. They drug this half-naked woman into the temple courts, which was not a normal thing to do, but they did it. Why? Because they knew Jesus would be there. They knew the good rabbi would be teaching, and he did. Now, admittedly, as every parent in the room has had this moment of frustration where their tween does something that they do not understand, that maybe they're mad, but how can you really be mad at Jesus uh, who is not doing anything bad. He's hanging out at the temple. I would never suggest in any sort of way that you defy or rebel against your parents. But if by some chance your parents tell you to be at a certain place at a certain time and you're not there, the place you better be is hang out at church. Okay? If, if you're doing that, they, they, the consequences might be mitigated just a little bit. Uh, so they can't be mad at Jesus, but they're sure frustrated at the mystery of Jesus. And that's not the first time. It's not the last time uh, that they will be frustrated at the mystery. And it's not the last time that Jesus will be misunderstood. And it's not the last time that Jesus will be found at the temple. And yet in all this... Jesus was the perfect child. He maintained righteousness. Verse 51. He went down with them. He came to Nazareth. He was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. 
Uh, this picture of that 12-year-old Jesus leaving the temple with all of these uh, teachers and rabbis. They're just um, it's amazed at this child. And he yields to his sweet mother and father because that's the right thing to do. He could have easily had said, no, I need to be here. I need to explain. I need to. But but he was tremendously humble and meek. This is the definition of meekness, by the way. This is a beautiful picture of it. Hebrews chapter 5, verses 7 through 9. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son... He learned obedience through what he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Now, this is just, this is a mind-blowing scripture. We're not going to crack it open right here, but, but you need to understand that what Jesus would fulfill in his life by his obedience, by his submissiveness, by his meekness, was we're seeing a powerful picture of it 20 years before he'll begin public ministry. He submitted himself. He was reverent. And he was reverent to God and he showed that by his respect toward his parents. Here's the lesson for us. And I think it comes in the last verse. The lesson for us from Luke is this. May we grow as he grew. This is what we can take from this chapter. Verse 52. Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Now, this is why I think I mean, when you're infinite, you don't really increase. You're, you're already all the way there fully. But when Jesus stepped in, when he, when he was manifest in the flesh, he had to grow. He had to, he had to increase in certain ways, physically, emotionally, intellectually, and spiritually. How that happened, again, the scriptures don't tell us. But it tells us that Jesus increased. He This blows my mind. Jesus had to seek to grow when he became human. He grew physically. He grew emotionally. He grew intellectually. He grew spiritually. Several fictional accounts have been written about the boyhood of Jesus. Uh, They're all fiction and none of them matter. Because Jesus didn't remain a boy. He was purposeful about his growth, whether it was increasing with his, in submission and respect of his parents, increasing in his knowledge and wisdom of his father, increasing intellectually in his knowledge of the word. May we grow as he grew, 
as he grew. May we grow in our wisdom. A pointed question for you. If you could look backwards in your life one year, uh, take, take, take the earth back one lap around the sun. Are you wiser today than you were a year ago? I hope so. You'd be surprised the number of people who reach a point and they just kind of flatline. They have no desire to grow in wisdom. Physically, in your stature, you know, there you kind of grow and you kind of stop, but you should physically take care of the body in which the Spirit of God resides. Spiritually, in favor with God, your adoration of God, your respect, your, your uh, fear of God, your love of God should all increase as you grow. And relationally, in favor with man. We have to learn people skills. We have to learn those things that are important and how to relate and how to share and how to talk and how to, the things to say and the things to not say. Uh, in all of those ways, are you better now than you were a year ago? And if you're not, what's the area where you most need to grow? We in Christ are called from being born again to maturity in Christ. These scriptures I'll run through quickly. Ephesians 4. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, that is Christ. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you've tasted that the Lord is good. And Second Peter chapter 3 verse 18. But grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. My question is, are you growing? Do you know Christ and are you growing in Christ? If neither of those things are true... Can we help you with that tonight? We can. We can help you, as was shown this morning, to take that first step by being born again into Christ. And, if you're in Christ, but you need to mature. There are ways in which you're not growing. And we'd like to pray with you and, and pray for you and encourage you so that we might help you. Our goal is to grow in the same way which Jesus grew. If you have a need tonight, uh, meet me down front and we'll help you in any way that we can. Please come as we stand and sing.